Hi there, it's Sarah. Thank you for joining me for part three of the poltergeist story. Today we're going to dig deeper into some of the scientific and psychological factors that start to outline a poltergeist case, and the many interesting ways our brains can deceive us. Now, environmental factors obviously may affect how humans perceive the world around them or in certain circumstances, can cause this perception to distort in various ways. Now, examples of environmental factors that may impede how we view the world include damp, how close you are to a waterway, the movement of tectonic plates, rock and mineral deposits, infrasonic waves, and variations, natural or unnatural, in electromagnetic fields, just to name a few. These are all areas of study and areas of inquiry that people have taken in the past, but it is very hard and almost impossible, despite people's efforts, to investigate this, especially in where it relates to paranormal environments, because it is almost impossible to set up any kind of control group in this area. It is almost impossible to isolate these factors without introducing just so many variables to render the experiment completely useless. But some people have tried. Um, so one I will talk about now is the Haunt Project, which I think is super interesting. And it was an attempt to build a haunted room by manipulating complex electromagnetic fields and infrasound, and it was carried out by the Goldsmith College of London. Now, the theory goes that environmental factors may be associated with mildly anomalous sensations, and the kind of mildly anomalous sensations that are typically associated with haunted locations. So, like um, the experiment in the 90s we were talking about before, there are certain experiences that people are more likely to interpret as paranormal. So some changes in temperature, sense of presence, a sense of dizziness, strange and familiar smells, for example. So in this study, their attempt was to construct a haunted room by systematically varying infrasound and electromagnetic fields in the room because it was believed that these could have a measurable effect on whether premises, whether a particular place was perceived as paranormal or not. So they systematically varied the infrasound and electromagnetic fields in the room and measured the resultant paranormal experiences in that the participants were assessed on their belief in paranormal experiences as well as the kind of sensations that they registered. So not only were they registering whether people under certain conditions were more likely to report paranormal experiences, they were also trying to get a, a fair mix of people who are already predisposed to the paranormal and people who don't have any paranormal beliefs. So the idea was that under high EMF and infrasound, but carefully 
carefully controlled to be undetectable consciously. So there were high levels around them, but it was very important that those who were under these conditions weren't aware of such, and those who were part of the control group and under no manufactured conditions, they weren't aware either. So under these high EMF and infrasound conditions, the subject would hopefully experience more paranormal activity than without such stimulus. Now, unfortunately, as as cool as the experiment sounds, and as much as I wish I could have been there, the only real correlation that was found was between those who already had a higher belief in the paranormal and those who then subsequently experienced paranormal sensations. In terms of whether they did or didn't experience anything, the EMF and infrasound had no significant impact on this chance. But I think something that was really interesting that was raised at the end of this study was the question of whether the the scenario, the, the kind of room that they had created, this like blank, formless, round, white room, which was constructed in North London in just a terrace house, whether this already had some of the qualities needed to create paranormal experiences. So whether basically what they viewed as the control, the, the neutral starting point, whether that already had some kind of environmental factors that made it more likely to be perceived as paranormal anyway. To make things scientific and to keep things fair, the subjects had to be informed broadly of what they were being assessed on. So they were to a certain extent primed with this idea of paranormal ideas. And there is a question that maybe the blank room that they were put into gave them a kind of blank canvas to work with in that it created a kind of absence of other stimulus. Um, Because remember, even though subjected to the EMF and infrasound, it was beyond, it was below what could be consciously picked up on. So in terms of the senses that they could consciously perceive, it was kind of a blank canvas and may have created a kind of weak sensory deprivation area that then could have triggered some kind of mild hallucinations in the subject's part. Again, this is something that was raised by those who created the test conditions, but they didn't expand too much on it. But I think it's a very interesting question. And again, I'd love to know if there's something intrinsic to these kinds of houses, to these kinds of premises. The kind of premises are likely to have gone through a succession of generations of just regular people. You cannot set foot anywhere in London without standing on a piece of ground that has been built upon the last thousand years. I wonder if there's something to that. But again, I'm a very superstitious person. That's why I'm doing this. Nonetheless, um, the experiment failed to prove that this kind of environment could be created, at least with EMF and infrasound. Um, It failed to show that you could create this environment with those specific variables that people were more likely to register as paranormal. 
those who were already likely to register a room as paranormal did and those who were less likely to didn't it didn't really seem to have any kind of effect but they are not the only people to investigate whether paranormal phenomena might be electrical in some form because this theory is only bolstered by the various accounts of poltergeist activity where they seem to interfere with technology, such as the Rosenheim case that we talked about previously. In the cases when people have managed to record poltergeist rappings and tappings, submitting these analog recordings to lab analysis seems to show that they are manufactured in origin and that, in fact, they are impossible to replicate by human means. There are many cases where people have gone to investigate paranormal activities and have had, by just kind of the tentative reaching out of human thought, they have tried to replicate the sounds that they hear. So if they hear what sounds like someone tapping on the table, they will try to recreate these sounds and typically find issue doing it. So when these recorded raps and taps are submitted to lab analysis... They don't follow the organic sound curve and the sort of trail off of someone rapping and tapping on a piece of wood, for example. They have, in fact, steep cliffs where the sound just cuts off abruptly, as if engineered in a sound laboratory. So obviously this weakens the case for an outside agent producing the sounds with some kind of hidden mechanical device. But it does strengthen the case that this isn't entirely human in origin, as not every effect that we view in a poltergeist case can be replicated by humans without technological intervention. Honestly, it raises more questions than it answers. But if we take this alongside the idea that, as noted, people have noticed that poltergeists often don't actually throw objects but they more appear to carry them through the air. So we can imagine an invisible figure picking up a cup and transporting it across the room in its hands. But by what means would it create inorganic sounds that can then imitate organic sounds? By what means would a spirit create these kinds of abrupt cliffs and inorganic raps and taps? It could be that these alien, I use alien as in inorganic sounds, are only interpreted as such as our brains, as we have a limited capacity to understand them. But why would a poltergeist entity ubiquitously produce sounds that register as striking and tapping sounds, but rarely sounds that can be interpreted as anything more complicated as even the simplest human phrase? Like I said, it frankly raises more questions than it answers. Following on from this, subsonic vibrations are suggested as a potential cause for some of the sight abnormalities that might explain the poltergeist impression or the impossible movement of objects or figures. So it has been suggested that vibrations such as the kind found in factories or the kind found next to railway lines or motorways or anything with persistent 
large mechanical heavy machinery can cause the eye to resonate in its socket and may supposedly cause visual disturbances that can be interpreted as figures or objects in the peripheral vision. Now, just the idea of my eyeball resonating in my eye socket makes me feel quite sick, so I'm only going to talk about it very briefly. But it does, um, this theory faces a lot of criticism because in order for it to cause the kinds of visual disturbances that can be interpreted as people, the the vibration would have to be so severe that any buildings in that vicinity would basically be shaken to the ground. But again, taken alongside what we've already heard, even slight, very, very mild visual disturbances, alongside other apparent positive feedback, could be latched upon by the brain as, you know, acting with some form of confirmation bias as explanation or as some sort of proof even if on its own it's it's a very weak proof together things start to make more sense and many of the places afflicted by poltergeists are busy are industrial are in the center of cities and would be subject to this kind of high levels of vibration that we were talking about factories as we've already heard about are ideal breeding grounds for mass hysteria, but they also provide a really rich environment for potentially earthbound spirits due to historically high levels of industrial accidents, injuries, and suicide. Now, Croydon in London played host to a building which is now unfortunately demolished that was a succession of bars up until the end of its life and it was said to be plagued by poltergeists at basically every iteration. Now the building changed hands and changed management over and over since the 70s um, in which the glassware, taps, kegs, everything was known to shatter, malfunction, leak, disappear, Um, glasses would fling themselves from cellar shelves at night and it even escalated to the point that the electronic teal systems were affected and they were ringing up phantom bills running into the hundreds of pounds. So many managers braved this environment. They went in with no belief in the paranormal, just I will ignore it and I'm just going to get on with my job. And manager after manager was forced out by these disturbances. One manager reported the glasses vibrating in their shelves as if a huge train was passing by outside the bar, and of course there wasn't. Ashtrays were neatly emptied in a line, a long line across the bar. Now, clearly these events were not exactly outside the capabilities of an outside agency, but their frequency and the time frame over which they occurred suggests that this case exists in a kind of grey area between poltergeist and haunting, It affected a succession of managers, and seemingly just the managers, who all crumbled to the persistent annoyance. The bar, for example, was renowned for wrecking marriages. One record I read said it wrecked about five or six successive marriages. Now, one of its last managers was mysteriously locked inside the premises overnight by a force apparently trapping him inside the cellar. Now, the disturbance was thought to be linked to the history of the premises as a girl had jumped from the opposite Nestle building and was said to have landed on the bar only to pass away. 
A previous manager was rumoured to have also been found dead in the pub. And before it was a bar, the building was said to be a fire station. Now, the site seemed to have a bit of everything, a kind of checkered past, this nightmare monolith of industry in the spectre of the Nestle Tower opposite. And as of today, it is a building site, so it seems to tick all the kinds of boxes of these kinds of environmental factors that may make a kind of breeding ground for paranormal experiences. But beyond the social, though, most potential realistic explanations for the poltergeist lie with the mind, our most powerful asset, and at times, unfortunately, our biggest enemy. The most famous and the most kind of dismissive theory for the poltergeist is, I wish it had a better name, um, the little girl syndrome. So when you think of poltergeist, you may think of the Enfield poltergeist, and it is probably in most people's mind the quintessential poltergeist. It centred around a London council house in the 70s and it caught the attention of noted SPR members, including Guy Leon Playfair. Now, Playfair was the ultimate British eccentric. Now, I imagine if I say this, you'll build quite a picture in your mind of him. So he was born in British India he was educated in Cambridge. He fell into paranormal research by accident after his journalistic career brought him into direct contact with a psychic healer in Brazil. Now, he unfortunately died in 2018, but up until his death, he continued to be a key figure in paranormal research and investigation. He published widely and wildly successful books and earned himself respect in the field including by Colin Wilson, whose book I have already referenced over and over again, and whose book helped me greatly in this. Now, you can imagine the kind of authority he brought to the case. Now, he stood up for the family in the Enfield poltergeist case and staked his claim with them that poltergeists were real. The activity occurred between 1977 and 1979, which is actually quite a long time for a traditional poltergeist haunting, and it involved two young sisters, the naughty little girls in this hypothesis, Janet, aged 11, and Margaret, aged 13. Now, in August of 1977, we were introduced to the story by single parent Peggy Hodgson, and she called the police from her rental home, to complain of knocking on the walls and furniture moving of its own accord. It should be noted that only the two girls heard the knocking in this case. Peggy's other two children did not. So from the outset, the two girls seemed to be the focus for this phenomena. Now, police constable investigated the scene and he saw minor disturbances with the furniture. He couldn't discern a cause but he didn't make too much of it to begin with but the story just continued from there over the period of 18 months the poltergeist effects just grew in intensity so they followed the kind of pattern that we are used to by the end of the 18 months more than 30 people including neighbors researchers and journalists said they saw heavy furniture moving of its own accord objects being thrown across a room and the daughter seeming to levitate several feet off the ground. The story was covered at length in the Daily Mirror. Playfair 
and the SPR never doubted that there was an entity at play in the haunting, but did notice that often the strange noises and whistles seemed to come from Janet's general direction, the younger daughter in this case. Playfair was of the opinion that the children might be adding to the existing phenomena with their own tricks and just kind of playing along with it. The events in general had earned them quite a lot of attention, so it wasn't out of the realms of possibility that they were just kind of perpetuating it a little bit to keep this attention on them. Now, American demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren of Annabelle fame also visited the house at the height of its disturbances, and they were also convinced that these phenomenon were genuine. However, the house was placed under a blanket of surveillance, and with so many eyes watching them, it wasn't long before Janet was caught attempting to bend items and banging broom handles against the ceiling. It was noticed that the disembodied voices of the entity had many of the same habits and mannerisms as Janet, a fact that became more and more apparent as time went on and the investigators got to know the girls and the family better. Now, it was speculated that the girls had staged some of the incidents for the benefit of journalists seeking a sensational story. But some more generous critics said it could be a case of very persuasive ventriloquism. Now, naming this case the Naughty Little Girl case really absolves a lot of people surrounded in this poltergeist phenomena. As suggested... There were many people following this case who had staked their professional lives on its truth. And to say that it was all perpetuated solely by an 11-year-old girl who managed to fool supposed experts in their field ignores so many questions and so much potential evidence to the contrary. So I really don't like the term for that reason, but nonetheless, it has become pretty much the pervasive way of interpreting poltergeist phenomena. The Enfield poltergeist is the source of one of the most famous poltergeist images, that of Janet apparently captured on film levitating above her bed. Now, looking at it now from a point of criticism, it seems obvious that it's an image of her bouncing from her bed. And if you've ever bounced on a bed, and you probably have, you, you'll know what it looks like, and it, it looks like that. But people weren't looking at this image with that context. They were looking at it as part of a body of evidence of a family plagued by an entity, a regular family in an ordinary council home, and a life probably very similar to those reading of the unfolding events as they played out in the tabloids. These ordinary people's sudden media spotlight, I imagine was kind of an aspirational read for some, this idea that you can be suddenly thrust into this kind of celebrity. It's not really viewed that way now, I would say. American magician Milbourne Christopher summed up this case's reception now. Outside of its continuous unfolding and developing story, the poltergeist was nothing more than the antics of a little girl who wanted to cause trouble and he was very, very clever. The naughty little girl theory gave this idea a term, if not an acronym, which in no doubt lends it an air of authority, which I don't know if it really deserves. Because whether or not these antics are perpetuated or even created by a little girl, it really doesn't go very far to explain why they would want to do this in the first place. 
proposed by psychical researcher Frank Podmore in the late 19th century. In short, the theory suggests that where there's poltergeist activity, there's usually a girl in the household faking it for adult attention. Now, why they are so strict in how this kind of faked activity comes across, I don't know. Where are these 11-year-old girls getting access to all of these accounts of poltergeists? I don't know. I don't remember as an 11-year-old girl really reading much about poltergeists, but who knows? It's all for adult attention. What can we say? Now, as we said, the case caught the attention of pretty much every paranormal investigator of the time and inspired documentaries, films, countless dramas. It inspired The Conjuring 2. Now, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I should also mention that alongside the naughty little girl hypothesis, there is the popularity of the Freudian analysis of accounts of this kind. Now, towards his death, which I didn't know until very recently, Freud became more and more open to the paranormal as facets of the unconscious mind made visible. Now, Freudian reading of poltergeist phenomena does not have to reach very far to find an individual or an adolescent proximate to the case said to be exhibiting repressed urges or desires. As mentioned, often the families afflicted by poltergeists are broken, are unhappy, with no lack of individuals seeking attention or approval. I think this approach clearly has merit for forming part of the motivation for those admitting to perpetuating poltergeist behaviour, but I can't in good conscience reduce everyone involved down to children seeking a strong male figure in their lives. But I had to mention it. Thank you for joining me for part three of the poltergeist story. Stay tuned for the next part where we dig into the paranormal and parapsychological ideas behind the poltergeist experience. In the meantime, find me on Twitter under Weird Horizon and wherever you get your podcasts.